0: are listening to The Addiction Files where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We are discussing harm reduction, creating connection through compassion and we are thrilled. We have Mindy Vincent joining us tonight. I am going to turn it over to Mindy to introduce herself, and then we are going to get started on this fantastic topic. Mindy.
1: Hello. Uh, My name is Mindy Vincent. I am a licensed clinical social worker. I also hold a master's of public administration, and I am the founder and executive director of the Utah Harm Reduction Coalition. I also have a private group mental health practice called Life Changes Counseling in Sandy, Utah. Um, and what else do you want to know in my intro?
2: Well, I mean, Mindy, this you're so humble because you're, you're like, <laughs> well, I have this little harm reduction coalition. I mean, it's just anyone who knows anything about harm reduction and anyone in Utah in this space knows, Mindy, you're an absolute icon legend. <laughs> badass. You are, you really are. And I remember the first time I met you was at this lit, this summit with like law. It was, it was at the school of law. And I remember just hearing you talk and going, yes, this woman, <laughs> no wonder why you've done the things you've done. So, you know, we, there's a lot of, intro, there's a lot to your background, but I think the work that you've done and the work you're doing will explain who you are. So let's just, I mean, that's amazing, all the things that you hold and the things that you run. But let's just keep, I want to just talk, we want to talk to you about what you do, how you got there and like the way forward, especially for organizations and states and departments who aren't where we are in Utah. And, you know, Utah is not as advanced as other states like New York, etc. But that's, I think, maybe we could start there. What do you think?
1: Yeah, we can start there. So I guess I'll tell you a little bit about UHRC and how it came about. So um, I started the Utah Harm Reduction Coalition in 2016, um, but to tell you just a little bit before that, so actually in a few days and three days I'll celebrate 16 years. And
2: uh, yay, Mindy!
1: I know it's wild. So uh, my recovery doesn't look the same as it used to look when I first started, but you know my 16 years or 16 years of a life beyond my wildest dreams. So um, when I was seven and a half years sober, my sister died from an opiate overdose and my little brother was still addicted to opiates and I was desperate to save his life. And he had actually shared the heroin with my sister that she died from. And being a clinician myself and a person who's recovered from a substance use disorder, I knew that like, even though he was like, I'm never going to use again, that that was so far from what would happen, you know? And I was desperate, like losing my sister still to this day, it's the hardest thing I've ever gone through. And if I had lost my brother, especially right after, I don't know that I would have made it. Through my desperation to save my brother's life, um, I realized I had a lot of realizations. Uh, You know, I put on my therapist hat, my personal recovery hat, and no matter which hat I put on, it was the wrong one. And I failed to just ask him, you know, what do you need? You know, and finally, like I got pushed that place of desperation where it was like, ding, like a little light bulb. And I was like, wait a minute, what do you need, Stan? And he was like, I need methadone. And it's interesting because until this point, you know, I was already a therapist. I was actually the residential program manager at First Step House. And uh, I I was open about not liking medication-assisted therapy. And I was open about I didn't really want people on mat on my caseload, you know, and I would say this ridiculous things that I hear people still say today. And, uh, in that moment, I just realized like what it meant to really meet somebody where they were at. And I also realized how many times as a clinician or as a person in recovery that I said things that could have sent somebody to their grave, you know, how many times Clinically, I made somebody feel like their recovery wasn't enough for me because it was an abstinence or because it was not 12 step. And, um, you know, as clinicians we have and as people in recovery, we have huge um, influence on people, you know, and uh, loving somebody has a huge impact and shaming them has an even bigger one. Mm-hmm. And right then I I decided that I was never going to. I had to change that, you know, and already in my professional life, I was having these experiences where I felt like I was fighting for people's worthiness to stay in treatment at the treatment team table every day, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I just, I, I decided, you know what, I'm going to, I always knew I was going to start my own program. You know, everybody who knows me knows that I do everything big and I am a natural born <laughs> leader for sure. So yeah. it was never a question whether I was going to open a program, but I never would have thought it would have been a harm reduction one. Right but through that at the same the same year my board chair and some other people were involved in getting the syringe exchange bill passed and all of these things just like coincided And through trying to help my brother, that's how I really started finding harm reduction because there was the drug policy Alliance conference that year, the drug policy conference. And that's the first time I learned about heroin assisted treatment and overdose prevention sites, which are also called safe consumption sites. And that's when I first learned about syringe exchange. I flew down to New Mexico and trained with the New Mexicans who are like anybody who works in drug policy knows that the New Mexicans are the rock stars of drug (laughs) policy. I went down there and, uh, Now we all have matching tattoos and they (laughs) taught me how to do syringe exchange in all their different areas. I got trained in harm reduction, harm reduction, navigator training. I've trained in, uh, integrative harm reduction therapy with Dr. Tatarsky, Andrew Tatarsky. He's a great little cat. And so I just shifted my whole way of practice. And then I, and I started UHRC and I said, I'm going to start the first legal syringe exchange in Utah. And that year on December 1st, which also happens to be world AIDS day. I went out on the block with tuberculosis syringes because the health department bought the wrong ones. They don't know. They don't shoot dope, you know. And they got tuberculosis syringes. Thank goodness they were 27 gauge. So we were able to use them. And I just went out and started handing them out to people. And I had flown back from New Mexico with like brillos and cottons and all sorts of stuff that the New Mexicans gave me to go get it started down here. It was so funny. It was great. I can't believe I made it through airport security.
2: (laughs) They wouldn't have known what to do with you. They're like, why do you have all this? That's amazing. That's so cool. And you just so you just decided that's it. I'm just gonna start this like I've got you had your passion. And you were ready to just move in the direction of, of change. I had to
1: save I have to save lives, you know, like the only way I know to deal with grief is to channel it. Like I've always been somebody who channels things. And ever since I was a little kid, when I see something that I felt was unjust, I've never had a problem standing up and fighting. Right. And so I was a born fighter. And then if you take something as important to me as my big sister, you know, you're going to have a fight on your hands, you know, and that's in addition to the 40 plus clients I've buried in the years that I've practiced, you know, and I loved those guys. You know, love is love. And when you spend 40 hours a week with these guys fighting beside them while they're trying to save their own lives, you know, it's like the world is a darker place without every single one of them. And I owe it to them. To fight and I owe it to the people who fought for me when I couldn't fight for myself because I'm the person I am today because of people who stood up and fought for me To always be right just in this one rigid mm-hmm. pathway and that was all recovery could ever be and to take me over here to harm reduction where I truly get to love people right where they're at and in their darkest moments with no agendas other than to help them save their lives. And it's the most beautiful, sacred, honorable thing I've ever gotten to do in my life. And I cannot believe that the universe or God or whoever uses me as a tool for good like that today. (laughs) It's just wild that I'm incredibly grateful.
2: Wow. Well, we're grateful and the the community stands benefited. So, I mean, tell us more about UHRC Now. So, UHRC Now. So, you know, at first it was uh, really hard We run
1: on. we ran on blood, sweat, and volunteers for the first, like, 18 months of syringe exchange, and we finally got, Am I American Express, and then uh, we finally got some funding, and and then we've just slowly grown our organization since then, and my plan was always, so this is a thing that's different about me as a harm reductionist than other harm reductionists is that most harm reductionists come from a public health place. I'm not a public health worker. I'm a social worker, and specifically, I'm a substance abuse treatment provider, You know, and so when I'm talking about treatment and things in harm reduction, I'm not talking about HIV and hepatitis C treatment. Those are lovely and everything, but that my focus is on substance abuse treatment. And that was always my plan to open a harm reduction based outpatient program. And today we have one. It's been running for about three years and it's the only harm reduction based outpatient program in the state. And one of the only ones in the whole country and we're the only one that I know of in the country that has a full spectrum of harm reduction services all the way from syringe exchange all the way through treatment. This I just is- don't know of another one and I've tried to find one there, may be one out there. Someone should let me know if there is, we'd love to, I'd love to collaborate with them and. Good ideas and stuff but so what that means though let me explain this little piece because people misunderstand harm reduction based treatment uh because people think oh then everybody's using and that's just not true um most of our people are court involved and they're trying to obtain abstinence or they some of them are abstinent some are on medications medically indicated prescribed medications that they're not abusing, that disqualify them from entering into other treatment programs, such as any kind of anxiety medications, Adderall. uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. Vyvanse, like medical cannabis. There's a ton of things that people can be on they can't ever go into treatment with. And what about people also who You know, somebody's like, man, I got a serious heroin addiction, but yeah, I'm still going to have a glass of wine with dinner once in a while. You cannot go to any treatment center and say you're going to drink it all and be allowed in, you know, like that's a relapse, blah, blah, blah. Like me, I I don't care. Like, I mean, of course I care, but I, whatever your recovery is going to look like, I'm here to support you and help you get there. The substance abuse treatment is the only treatment I've ever seen that requires the outcome before the work has been done to get there. And I am not ever going to require somebody to give up their best and only and sometimes only coping skill when they haven't learned other ones and expect them just to sink or swim. You know, it's unfair. And, you know, a friend of mine says that relapse happens when the situation someone's in for in the situation that someone is in calls for more skills than they have. And so then they relapse, right? So if we, and that, like the first time I heard that, I was like, dang, that is like the most accurate thing I've ever heard. And And then it made even, and it makes even more sense, like then why do we demand these certain behaviors or outcomes out of people who are struggling with addiction without giving them other tools? Otherwise, we say it's a chronic relapsing disease, which, you know, I would argue against that. But even if, so let's say we all believe that, right? Then why are we kicking everybody out of treatment? Why are we telling everybody, you know, like, abstinence is the only way it can be like, I'm not willing to help you with your heroin addiction, unless you t- lie to me and tell me you're never going to drink or smoke weed again. Like, I mean, it just, none of it makes sense to me. And so I'm here to change the world and to change the way that we do treatment. And someday much sooner than later, everybody's going to do treatment the way I do treatment. Well, and look back and wonder why yes. they live such an archaic way to begin with. Just you're like did, I do. I look back right. and I'm like, what was I thinking?
2: No, you're dead right. I tell this to Darlene all the time. I th- I model, you're my mentor, my, my the program that I'm doing down here, like, that's what we're trying to do, is just exactly this, people can't show up abstinent, you know, you can't do it. So you got to work with people while they're still using no matter what, work with them on their goals. It just is ridiculous that we've come from this model, or we come from this model that's so rigid, and that we just discharge people if they're not doing well, mm-hmm. doesn't make any sense, you know, and the fact that you have a full sp- full spectrum of services makes so much sense too, because why not? Like people, that's what people need. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But so I was just telling you this before we started recording that a family member of mine needs treatment and I can't find a single treatment program that he can go to while he's still struggling to not use, except your yeah. program.
1: I, because, and, I love that I can take him.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know you can. That's what I told my family. I'm like, this is where you go, you know, cause in the meantime, what do you do? Yeah. And you know what is another
1: piece to that is like, you know, it's client. So treatment's supposed to be so client-centered. Like my field, period, it, our field is supposed to be client-centered. But the first thing we do when people come into treatment is tell them what their recovery has to look like. We tell people take the cotton out of their ears and put it in their mouths. You know, And it's like, and we also tell people that, you know, if you don't do these things, you cannot participate in treatment. And that just, it's just wrong.
0: Mindy, can you just tell us how did you get like syringe exchange legal in the state of Utah? Because that was not an easy battle. And, and a lot of the services that you provide.
1: So the syringe exchange, I didn't get that bill passed that bill. My board chair had something to do with it, but representative Elison ran that bill. And It was about a paragraph long and it was called the Essential Disease Intervention Act. And it passed almost unanimously in the House and the Senate. And it's because nobody read the bill and they didn't know what it was. And they were like, oh, yeah, we want to prevent disease. Everybody voted yes. And and then but the hard part, like the easy part was passing it. There was no fiscal note attached to it. So nobody thought twice. Everybody just signed off on it. Right. And then I come in to implement it. And I got attacked statewide by all sorts of, like, law enforcement was threatening me, saying that they would um, tell the town that I brought heroin in, that they would follow me around and arrest me with the paraphernalia. Uh, Like, I had a, a a mayor actually tell me that uh, legalizing medical cannabis leads to child rape and like and I'm there to talk to him about syringe exchange I'm like whoa and the sheriff of that same place told me that up at Rio Grande because this was when the block was around he said that they drive in with uh, bulldozers and scoop all the syringes out like a scene from the movie Saw and I was like um sir that is so far from accurate <laughs> and, but people really do have these ideas and these beliefs in their mind and in some, some of it some of these beliefs are just outlandish. You know, it's like, you know, you could just look around and find out that that thought is out in outer space, but there are some concerns that people have about syringe exchange. They think are really valid. Um, they don't turn out to be founded, but they make sense to have them in the first place, right? Like people think that a syringe is going to, a syringe exchange is going to create more syringe litter. People think it's going to create more drug use. Um, but that's, that's just not accurate. Like, first of all, the belief that drug users don't take care of themselves is a myth. You know, people, when they have the ability to take care of themselves, most people do choose to take care of themselves, right? So when people have access to syringe exchange, we see syringe litter go down and there's decades of research on syringe exchange to support all of these things, right? Right. So we see that syringe litter goes down. People who access syringe exchange are five times more likely to enter into substance abuse treatment. Think about how many people we can access through syringe exchange that otherwise we would not access because we normally don't, I don't get my hands on somebody until they have entered into the system and usually through the criminal justice system, right? The criminal justice system should not be the doorway for help. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So getting it started was a little bit difficult, but I think the way that I was able to meet people in the middle was that, I mean, anybody who talks to me knows that my heart is pure and my intentions are purely to help people and to love them. And I believe that most officers of the law, especially ones that I have interacted with, they have the same desire for their community. We just go about it in maybe some different ways, but if we can meet in the middle on the fact that we're both trying to save lives then we can we can work on it from there. And I've had to make some compromises, some that I didn't necessarily like, but you know what? As, as long as we can get a foot in the door and we can demonstrate that all these nightmares that people have about syringe exchange and harm reduction, that there, those things are not going to come true, um, then we can make even more progress, right? So like none of the things that people thought were going to happen with syringe exchange ever happened. And it's actually turned out to be a a wonderful program that's helped a lot of people and has prevented a lot of disease and has helped a lot of people get resources like housing and connection with their community and get into treatment and get Medicaid. The list goes on and on and on.
2: Yeah. I'm so impressed, Mindy, because I had the opportunity to ride along and come with your team a couple of times. And I was just so like the, um, the huge impression that left in me was the care that you guys have and you really just take time. It's complete wraparound services. There's wow. just as much emphasis on like what can, we, where are you sleeping tonight, as to you know how are you injecting your drugs or what are you using. There was so much emphasis on food scarcity and are you warm enough, and it was really touching. It was it's really a social service. It's not just a syringe exchange, you know. And so your 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 whole program is a testament to the to your vision and mission so really thank you that means a
1: lot to me i mean we yeah. truly love these love the people that we serve and uh you know the what the world needs is more love the answer really is love it's not tough love it's just love you know like if punishment worked the best outcomes would come from the homeless community in the prison and that's who has the worst outcomes yet we continue to do those things mm-hmm. and we have to change it and we have to just love people and all those little things, right? Like you were just talking about, Paula, like getting people food, making sure they're warm, like making sure people have housing and stuff. All those things are positive change that are parts of recovery that help people move forward and give people hope when you've destroyed your whole life for so long, it's hard to believe that you can ever do anything good. That anything you touch won't just turn to shit, you know, and we get to help believe in people until they can believe in themselves. And no one deserves to die because they use drugs and everybody has a right to have treatment and if you come to me and ask for my help how unethical and irrational is it of me to put to say that if you act in that very behavior you're asking for help from for me you know that if you act in that behavior that I'll discontinue helping you you know that doesn't make any sense if people could do it on their own they already would why would they need my help
2: exactly no you're you're dead right so tell us what in the choir here. Right. Uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> Everyone needs to know how very much I love and respect Dr. Paula Cook. She's like the first <laughs> medical person ever made me feel like I wasn't crazy. And you have such a mellow way about you that like you can say things, the same thing I'm saying, and people can hear it coming from you sometimes <laughs> a lot better. And I think being a doctor helps with that too. But man, you are one of my idols and heroes and I just love you in a million mm. ways.
2: Oh, Thanks, Mindy. I appreciate that. That's high praise coming from you. Tell us what your program looks like. So say that I send my my son, okay, my this is hypothetical, but say that my son needs is using drugs and what if he came to you, I said, hey, listen, go to UHRC, what kind of experience would he have? What kind of uh, from start to finish, including the actual syringe exchange encounter to maybe that your IOP, et cetera.
1: Um, in syringe exchange, when someone accesses services there, we do an intake with them with a full, like a risk assessment. We make a service plan, which is very similar to like a treatment plan at UHRC. I require everybody to have a minimum of two goals because I mean, let's face it. My, the friends that we're working with, they have got a lot of things going on and we have a lot of ways that we can be helpful and that we can help them move along through the stages of change. Right. Right. So that those goals can be as simple, though, as I don't want to die. I don't want to contract disease, you know, and they can they can grow upon those from there. Right. So um, everybody's required to consent to HIV and hepatitis C testing. People have the right to say, no, I don't want to do testing. If they choose to not engage in testing, we refer them out to another exchange. Because if I don't have a baseline that shows that you're whether you're positive or negative for hepatitis C and HIV, then how do I show that? The Syringe Exchange is actually working as an intervention. (laughs) The data and research really matter to me. Uh, They inform drug policy. They inform our programming. And without it, we're just like flying around like bats in the dark. And I won't do that. You know, these are people's lives on the line. And that was something I was going to say earlier when you gave us that wonderful compliment about the kind of wraparound services and care people receive. There's an essay in public administration called The Thousand Hands. And in this um, essay, it talks about how as someone goes through the system, a thousand hands will touch them. And I always talk about this essay to my staff and I tell them, I take it very seriously that when our hand when our hand touches them, it has to leave a mark because these people really could leave our services and go down the street and die. And I take that very seriously. If we didn't do everything we could to try to help them, I can't save anyone But I can definitely give people hope, resources, and let them always know that there is something better waiting for them on the other side if they're willing to do a little bit of work to get there. You know, so it's an important thing. Anyway, um, so when somebody's in syringe exchange, they do the testing and then, you know, they turn in their syringe. It's the law that somebody turns in at least one syringe. And then it's also the law that we give out syringes and they're sterile, unopened packaging, which means 10, a package of 10. So for every one somebody turns in, so actually it's one for one plus. So like if somebody turns in seven, they're going to get a package of 10. If they turn in 72, they're going to get 80, right? And I know some people are like, oh, you should have one for one. Well, we do almost have one for one in our return ratio. However, like putting limitations on what people can get in syringes makes it so that People are just as likely to still spread disease because if people don't have a new syringe, a new cooker, new materials to use every time, they don't have a choice but to reuse. You know, and this is why the enabling argument doesn't make any sense, you know, because people, I'm not powerful enough to make people start using drugs. I'm not powerful enough to make them stop. Right. But I can give them the tools to be healthy in the meantime while also giving them a safe place to land. So people will get all the materials that they need to safely use whatever substance we also try to help people get safe smoking um tools as well sometimes that's not as easy but um and then we just consistently check in we all every month we do an update on their service plan and we do an update on the risk assessment if they're still engaging in risky behaviors then we have them continue hiv and hepatitis c testing and then when someone is coming to treatment. Treatment and harm reduction, harm reduction based treatment is just like any other kind of treatment. We use the same clinical interventions. We just don't require, um, we have no requirement of what their relationship with any substance has to look like, not to engage in treatment, not to graduate treatment. Like that's one of the things about harm reduction. What someone says their goal is, is what we support them in, whatever that may be. And then my job as a clinician is to poke around and maybe try to get them to push a little further sometimes, you know, that's how you help move people through the stages of change. And that's my job. I shouldn't expect clients to do it for me.
2: So amazing. Ah, uh, you just so inspiring. What a program. Oh. Okay. I have a question for you. Um, how often do you repeat HIV? This is just granular, but how often do you repeat HIV and hep C testing for your people who are continuing to engage in more risky behaviors? Like every month, every month, yeah, monthly. And but we have very few people who fall into that
1: category like so few, yeah. Yeah. If people have the materials that they need, people really don't like to share. I mean, so, um, as far as smoking supplies, like you know, there used to be these spark plug covers that you could put on pipes, which prevent like the blood transferring from people's split lips and stuff, but those are really hard to get, and so we don't get to hand those out very often anymore. We do try to hand out some straws. Um, but those are, sometimes can be hard too. Cause it's often plastic straws and plastic melts when it gets close to the heat, right? We don't want people smoking plastic. Um, so I try to get, you know, good straws when I can, or at least get people, um, many of the straws, you know, so they don't have to share straws either. Cause you can transmit hepatitis C snorting, you know, with a straw, a snorter. Um, and then we give out tin foil sometimes we don't give out pipes. Um, I would if they'd let me, you know, but that would definitely set people over the edge. Uh, As far as safe, other safe consumption supplies, we give tourniquets, ointments, sterile water, cookers, the syringes. We have given out brillas in the past, but we don't usually give those out anymore. Um, Antibiotic ointment, I already say that one. Band-Aids, wound care supplies, all those kind of things. And I have to tell you this funny story really quick because I just remembered it. So like the enabling thing, you know, uh, I had this, le- he actually was a legislator and now he's like chairman of the board of like a pretty important nonprofit in downtown Salt Lake. And he he didn't like the syringe exchange and we were sitting down and talking about it and he was saying how I was going to make people use drugs. And I said, you know... So if I gave you everything you needed, including like everything you needed to safely inject cocaine today, including the best cocaine, would you do it? And he was like, well, I don't know. Maybe Mike, sir, you are 72 years old. We if you are considering using cocaine because I gave because it's sitting here, we have a lot more to talk about than what's sitting here. You know what I mean? Like, that is so crazy to think that kind of... I couldn't believe he even said that. Like, usually when I ask somebody that, they're like, well, no. And I'm like, well, why not? You can. And they're like, yeah, but I don't use cocaine. It's like, yeah, neither do the other people that don't
2: use syringe exchange. Like- That's so funny. Oh, man. I know it's hard. It's hard to, for people to wrap their head. It's hard. It's a difficult shift, you know? It's a shift. Mm-hmm. It's a mind shift. and And I mean, man... The medical community are the worst. I mean, law enforcement, you've talked a lot about your interactions with law enforcement. But when um, I'm aware of this, because this is a process I've gone through myself. So my own journey of coming, you know, like walking in your footsteps. But I went to the National Harm Reduction Coalition Conference in Puerto Rico. And I sat there and I was so ashamed to be a medical doctor. Like, I don't think there were very many of us there and I can, and okay, so that's why, like, first of all, why weren't there more medical people there? It's an amazing conference. And also I just couldn't, the things that I was hearing about the difficulties people have accessing good treatment and all the things that they need, whether it's psychiatric care, whatever it is that the medical community are the gatekeepers of, or buprenorphine or naloxone or hepatitis C treatment, Just to hear all these barriers and the medical stigmatization people endure, the medical trauma they experience when they go to the emergency room or their family medicine clinics or urgent care, I just felt so embarrassed. I'm like, we are failing. As a medical community, we are not teaching medical and we're not getting any better, really. I mean, we're not teaching medical students or Uh residents, like it's not written into the curriculum. Now, that being said, the newer generation, I feel much more hopeful because they're they're doing it themselves and they're much more socially just. But anyway, I don't know why I felt the need to say that. I guess it's because a lot of our listeners are medical providers and so we need to step up. This is evidence-based, like you said, this is backed up by decades of data that's that the CDC publishes, like this is all. Yeah. NIDA, is all, all of them
1: support harm reduction practices. it's exactly. not in funding. Nine,
2: yep, NIDA, CDC has the technical handbook. I mean, that's yeah. the handbook is written by the CDC, right? For for yep. syringe exchange programming,
1: it's wild. And the medical community, they really, it, in fact, when we are done recording this, I'm going to send you. I'm going to show you over some research. <laughs> A friend of mine just recently defended her dissertation about barriers to implementing harm reduction and not surprising to me and not surprising to you, but providers are the number one reason why we can't implement harm reduction. I can't wait for you to see this research. It's really quite beautiful. And everything that we know about what works for people and how people move through the stages of change. And yet what we do just flies in the face of that and we don't accept, um, you know, we don't accept. Evidence-based practices because they go against people how people feel on the inside based upon false myths and beliefs that are often grounded in I think they're often grounded in um, self-preservation because so many people who work in the field of recovery are in recovery themselves and I think that we're the people who are the guiltiest of taking our own personal experience it, experiences and generalizing them to everyone else you know and then we're 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 often like you know, we're prompted to do that we're encouraged to do that, you know, and um, we tell people, like I said earlier, you know, take the out of yours and put it in your mouth. And we tell people that we know what's best for them. And I swear treatment is moving to a place. It will move to a place where instead of us telling people what they need, we're going to ask them what they what they need instead.
2: I hope so. Darlene's really great at that. You know, she's always been so good at that, even though she's the lone like family medicine doc doing addiction medicine up in, um, you know, up in, in Davis County. I mean, Darlene, you've, you always talk about this. Like, just, you always get people's goals and try and work with people where they are, but that's not always, I mean, I guess, like you said, we are preaching to the choir. We're in addiction medicine, but even in addiction medicine, we've had people in our very community that are like, you know, don't want to sign up or align, but that are, that are so clearly the right thing for our people because it's too political, too controversial. They don't want to put their name behind it or Rocky. Right. Cause then, you're thinking, man, and that's, I'm not saying we're holier than loud. Like, oh, we've got it. Like we've got harm reduction down and they don't, but it's frustrating. We, we need to move the needle along.
1: Yeah, for sure. People's lives are at stake.
2: You know, and one thing
1: that I see in the medical community that's difficult, I, and I even tell my clients like not to disclose their history of substance use to anybody, but their their long-time primary care provider because doctors won't help them. Like if you are... There's all sorts of things they're not going to help you with. Like ADHD is a simple one, right? Like people who have ADHD are expected to perform in treatment without medication as if they were on medication. And if you can't be honest with your provider, how can they really help you? That's my thing with treatment, too. If people are afraid that they're going to get kicked out for telling the truth or for relapsing or whatever... They're not going to tell me the truth. Addicts are not inherently liars, cheats, and thieves. Our system set them up to have to be. You know, if you're honest with your DCFS worker that you relapse, what's going to happen? They're going to come in and take your kids. You know, you're going to lose your visitation. You're going to, like, things are always going to get taken away if you're honest. And at UHRC, I will not allow that. You know, if you are honest with me, I will, I will fight for you. I'll work with you. And so far, you know, in the last three and a half years, we've been open. It's working quite nicely. My clients don't lie to me about using it all. I have clients, I have a client right now who like she actively uses every day. Like she's just maintained on heroin and cocaine. It's not like she's like out chaotically using, she's just maintained, but her goal is to gain the skills to one day be able to look at being able to be abstinent. She knows that she can't that she does have the skills to do it, so she's diligent. She goes to, comes to treatment every single day, and she diligently works in her treatment. She's very active and engaged, you know. And and so when people say, "Oh, you can't help people who are actively using," that really pisses me off. Mm-hmm. You know, because yes, you can, you can do EMDR with people who are actively using people who are actively using, make good choices every single day. Most people who are, who are actively using have jobs, they have housing. Like it's mm-hmm. this small, low percentage that are like totally chaotically using or homeless and all these things. And, um, you know, people make the choice to go check themselves into detox and treatment every single day mm-hmm. to say that somebody who's actively using can't make changes is just such a cop out for people who don't want to do their job. Sorry, I went on a little bit of a rant there. No, that's okay. I hear you. And we all need to do better. We all need to do better.
2: We do. And you know what is, and Darlene, sorry, I'm kind of dominating here, but what's been really amazing for me, I'm in working in a new team and one of the key players in my team is in recovery and actually two of them. And it's just so cool to sit down and talk and everyone advocates for our patients and our clients and They challenge me to think in different ways, and like, okay, it's it's just really helpful to have other people other than just you. And I think this is another thing that's really dangerous with medical providers is we're top of the pinnacle, top of the pyramid, and we get complete autonomy to make decisions about people's lives without consulting with our social work colleagues, with our nurse managers, with our nurses, with our peers, without you know like peer recovery specialists because they can advocate and say, you know what, yeah, this guy like right now I have a a guy who's using cocaine he can't stop using because it makes him he says it makes him feel less anxious he's like yeah. without it i can't like get through my day i feel so agitated so we have to, we've, we've talked about what we can do reduces harm he's on methadone we can't increase his take because he's still using cocaine but he lives far away and we've come up with you know we're trying to work all these different angles to see what he really wants which is to actually stop using but he can't feel like he can stop using because he doesn't have good control of his anxiety. And so what, anyway, it's been really great to work in that kind of a environment and to listen, to listen more, instead of just thinking, this is the way I was trained. This is what we have to do. We're always right. Yeah. Anyway. I'm I just love that. Yeah. There's a I'm lot also of a huge fan
1: of like, You know, multidisciplinary teams, because as much as I love and respect doctors and I don't step into their lane in prescribing medications and the medical model, right? However, doctors are not trained in what I'm trained in. They're not trained in therapy. They're not trained in addiction. I mean, you guys are because you're addictionologists, but regular doctors are not really trained in addiction. You know, they're not trained in psychology. Like, you know, that's just not what they do. And so without the voice of therapists at the table, Doctors are really very ill-informed when it comes to treating people in addiction. Absolutely. I know that plenty of people are going to be really sad that I said that. And that's, <laughs> there's that's lots okay. of things, doctors, that you know that I don't.
2: <laughs> okay, we don't feel threatened. Don't worry. We're... Oh,
1: some do, Paula. But you know what? Everybody needs to be open to having like, you know open feedback and dialogue amongst a whole group of people, because that's how we best serve people, you know, and hearing from our clients as well. Like what's working for you and what's not. I ask my clients all the time, how can I better serve you? What can I do to serve you better? Like, you know, and sometimes feedback sucks to hear, but man, I want to be the best provider I can be. You know, I want to, this might be my only shot with this cat. You Mm -hmm. know, like I got to give it all I've got.
0: That's I love awesome. that. I think that's great advice. I think I learned the most was I had a patient who, yeah, I was really struggling with. And th- and that's really what they finally told me is, I just want you to help me stop using heroin. I don't want to stop using methamphetamines. And that's all I'm here for. And I think as providers, we need to do that. We need to just listen to our patient and help them with their goals. And eventually it's like, it's like you, like you said, as your patient, they're still actively engaged in treatment. It's not that they're not wanting anything from you yeah. and you just need to keep offering them services and keep working with them and they get, and they get better.
1: It says a lot yeah. about somebody who's actively using, but shows up to treatment.
2: That's yeah, that, takes, that takes
0: a lot. Exactly. Yeah
2: that's huge. And it speaks yeah. to the program that it's a program that they feel supported and that's community and they feel safe, right? So it's somewhere yeah. to show up and belong and that's in itself therapeutic, you know.
1: Yeah, it, it's the biggest it's the biggest thing creating connection through compassion. Mm-hmm. Like we know the connection is what helps people change, being connected to things, having purpose, you know, and like man, getting to love somebody right where they're at and to know like even my guys who have died, I know they died knowing I love them. You know, mm. they did not doubt that I loved them, and that's the best compliment somebody could ever give me. Is you know, I always feel loved by you, Mindy, or mm. I feel they feel safe to come there. It's like that's the best thing somebody could ever tell me.
2: Mm. I love it. I, we could tell so inspirational. You inspire me. What else is there? Anything else that you what we need to talk about? We didn't really talk about future legislation or directions, like. There are lots of things that we still need to do as as a country, as a world for people who who use drugs. And what would you put at the forefront of those issues? And we'll talk about them briefly. Um, The two. Well, I feel like I kind of won
1: my fight with the medical cannabis as a harm reduction tool, because this last year uh, we got the condition added that acute pain qualifies for a short term prescription medical cannabis for pain management and in place of opiates, that's incredibly important for people who never want to start opiates in the first place. It's even more important for people who've already had an opiate addiction and have to, God forbid, get their teeth pulled, get any kind of surgery ever, right? Like I don't even like to take opiates. They make me very sick. I would much rather have the option to use medical cannabis instead, right? So um that one though, but like people just getting more open-minded about using plant medicine as a harm reduction tool, as a healing tool, things like that. But uh, the big one that I would definitely that we should definitely chat about is overdose prevention sites. That legislation has made it nowhere. Three years in a row in Utah, yet a drug induced homicide bill flew right out of committee. They won't even let overdose prevention site legislation into committee to even discuss it. And the reality is, is that people are using drugs out on the streets. They are dying in porta-potties, in Pioneer Park, in Burger King bathrooms, in alleys behind people's businesses. Shit, in front of people's businesses sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, when people have a safe place to use substances because people are using them whether we want them to or not. And we have decades of evidence to show that our plan to cut off supply and to punish people out of it is not working. And it's cost a lot of money and it's cost even more lives. Right, so we need to accept that like drug use is part of life. What can we do to mitigate its negative, its negative impacts, and what can we do to help prevent people from getting on it in the first place? Right, and through overdose prevention sites, no one has ever died in an overdose prevention site in the entire world, and they've been open. The first one was open in Berne, Switzerland, in 1994, and no one has ever died, making it even more effective than naloxone, because people have been administered naloxone and died. You know, and so I'm just saying, if we really want to save lives, if we're serious about saving lives from opiates and fentanyl, we have to open overdose prevention sites.
2: And you know, what you this is I agree with you, Mindy, I stand by you on this. And the evidence from a scientist, from a scientific perspective, the evidence totally supports it. And from an ethics perspective, it, it you know, we have to stand behind it as well and advocate for people to have humane and ethical conditions in which to remain safe. I agree with you personally and professionally. And it's so interesting to hear you talk because if you just substitute every time you say safe consumption site or overdose percent prevention site for syringe exchange and go back 10 years, and as if you were arguing for syringe exchange, it's the exact same language. It's yeah. the same argument. And so, like, we've made a lot of progress in a lot of states for syringe exchange, not every state, right? There's still states that are, that syringe exchanges are illegal. But yeah. we're making progress in many states in this way. And yet overdose, you know, prevention sites, safe consumption sites are completely, you know, banished in terms of legislation, like you said, they're not even making it to committee. And yet it's the same exact data. It's the same argument that we're just keeping people alive so that we can engage them in services and help them with housing, help them with um, connection to medical care and psychiatric care and substance use treatment and trauma-informed services. So
0: it's interesting. And the cost in this is just, it's really interesting. And I know we've talked about this before, Paula, but in these safe consumption sites, it, they they ran the data just for San Francisco. So one city, we're not talking a state, we're talking one city alone from just one site would save 3.5 million per year by just having one site running in overdose prevention, because you would have, they were predicting 67% fewer ambulance calls. So that, I mean, it's just like, we're not number one, All of these sites that run are not getting funding in the first place, but the amount of just not talking about the lives and just the humanity there, but just on a fiscal note. I mean, legislators can't argue with you there on what it's costing our system by every time there's an overdose about what that's doing and what you could prevent by just allowing this. I mean, that's that's hard to argue. That's really hard to argue.
1: And we do have the data from the first year of the ones in New York being opened. And we know that you know one of the ones that saved 603 Mm -hmm. lives. You know, I mean, we just and dying, it sounds harsh, but dying is expensive. You know, overdose is expensive, dying is expensive. Indigent people dying is expensive. Like all of these things cost a lot of money, but most importantly, We've lost a life and we already have safe consumption sites in Utah. They're called bars. We have safe consumption sites for alcohol. And why would we not allow that for substance use as well? I mean, we tried prohibition. We had prohibition with alcohol and look where it got us. So we got rid of it, but then we decided to just still, like, you know, go, we're all in on the war on drugs, you know? <laughs> but, I mean, we're starting to pull out of it, I think, you know, and it's just going to take a long time to undo that sticky little web.
0: I love it. That is so great. Thank you so much, Mindy. This is, you're just a wealth of knowledge and your fire and passion is infectious. (laughs) Woo!
1: We're here to change the world and nothing less, my friend.
0: (laughs) We cannot thank you enough. Thank you for joining us and check check us out. Do you have any like a website, any like social media that you want our followers to check you out on if they want more information?
1: Yeah, so we're on Facebook and Instagram. We have Utah Harm Reduction Coalition, and we also have Rebel Recovery. And our website is www.utaharmreduction.org. And then my other private practice is Life Changes Counseling. You can find us everywhere.
0: Fantastic. Thank you and have a good night. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. education purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, you're advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.